I'm a huge planner. So whenever my wife, Radhi and I would go on our adventures, I'd meticulously plan out our itineraries and book our accommodations in advance. It's like a yearly tradition that we do. And let me tell you, Booking.com has been my go-to every step of the way. Whether I want to be a simple guy nestled in the countryside or be the stylish and modern guy in the heart of the city, Booking.com never fails to offer a wide range of options that perfectly suit your preferences and they have everything you need to turn your travel dreams into reality, offering accommodations here in the US. Plus, the ease of booking through the app makes the whole process a breeze. So trust me when I say, when it comes to planning unforgettable getaways, Booking.com is where it's at. Ready to book your next adventure? Book whoever you want to be on Booking.com. Booking.yeah. Herbs have been a huge part of my wellness journey. Thanks to my Indian roots, My mom introduced them to me and I saw firsthand how they worked wonders for both body and mind. And when it comes to keeping my digestion in check, slippery elm bark and ginger root are my go-tos. Our sponsor, Nature's Way, has over 50 years sourcing these herbs and many more that can promote digestive health. Visit naturesway.com forward slash herbs and use code J10 at checkout for 10% off any herbal supplements through June 30. Terms apply. Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. If success is this lagging indicator of commitment now, how can you be sure that you are paying your dues? The best-selling author and host. The number one health and wellness podcast. On Purpose with Jay Shetty. Hey everyone, welcome back to On Purpose, the number one health podcast in the world. Thanks to each and every one of you that come back every week to become happier, healthier. Did you find any subscriptions you forgot about or any you paid for twice and didn't realize it? I personally experienced this where I received an email that said I paid for a subscription for an app I'm not even using anymore. Did you know nearly 75% of people have subscriptions they've forgotten about? Before I started using Rocket Money, I thought I had only about five subscriptions. I could not believe it when they showed me I was paying for eight subscriptions each month. Between streaming services, fitness apps, and delivery services, it's never ending. Thanks to Rocket Money, I'm no longer wasting money on the ones I forgot about. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in cancelled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. And I love that I have full control over all my subscriptions and I can see it in one place. So if I see something I don't want anymore, Rocket Money can help me cancel it with a few taps. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com forward slash J. That's rocketmoney.com forward slash J. Rocketmoney.com forward slash J. Life can be a wild ride, and sometimes our gut gets thrown off track. 
So that butterfly in your stomach, it's probably not from excitement. It's more likely from stress or certain food choices you had for breakfast. And Ritual can help you get things back on track. They made a three-in-one supplement with clinically studied prebiotics, probiotics, and a postbiotic to support a balanced gut microbiome. Every morning, I start my day with Symbiotic Plus. It's now an essential part of my daily routine. With its blend of prebiotics, postbiotics, and all that good stuff, I'm giving my gut the love it needs to tackle whatever comes its way throughout the day. There's no shame in your gut game. Symbiotic Plus and Ritual are here to celebrate, not hide your insides. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com forward slash Shetty. Start Ritual or add Symbiotic Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com forward slash Shetty for 25% off. On Purpose with Jay Shetty is brought to you by Booking.com, Booking.Yeah. Many of you know that one of the most important aspects of my life is my connection with others. Travel has become one of the best ways for me to connect with people, whether that be my community, my family, friends, or loved ones, or all of you. Most of my family lives outside of the US, so traveling around the holidays, birthdays, or other special occasions is something that we're accustomed to. As we grow older, oftentimes our families or loved ones end up living in different areas as us, making it challenging to get together due to various schedules and commitments. With Booking.com, I'm able to efficiently book travel and accommodations for everyone in my family so that we can spend quality time together. They also make it easy to book travel for the various types of travelers in my family so that each person in my family can authentically be the traveler they want to be, no matter the destination. Once a year, my family takes a trip together to a US destination where none of us live or are visited. We find this helpful in making sure that everyone is truly present and able to unplug from their normal routines, resulting in more meaningful conversations and connections. Experiencing new places with those close to you allows you to bond over a shared experience. Booking.com's breadth and variety of accommodations in the US has made the destination selection and booking process not only easy, but fun. Travel can also foster new connections. Visiting different cities has allowed me to build connections with all of you, my community, most of whom I've never met in person and otherwise would have not crossed paths with. The in-person relationships that are built and strengthened through travel is something that each of us can benefit from. Book whoever you want to be on booking.com, booking.yeah. And more healed. Today I'm talking to a guest who I've had the pleasure of interviewing I think, I think this is the fourth or fifth time that I'm getting to sit down with him. Probably the person I've interviewed the most in my entire interviewing career. And it's because he keeps putting out incredible work and incredible books that I hope you're going to read. Uh, I'm talking about Ryan Holiday, who's one of the world's best-selling living philosophers. Ryan's books, like his new one, Discipline is Destiny, uh, which is available right now. Number one, New York Times bestsellers, multiple. Uh, some of my favorite ones, The Obstacle is the Way, Ego is the Enemy, The Daily Stoic. Uh, and they've been translated into over 40 languages and sold multi-millions of copies. Uh, I'm so excited to talk to Ryan today about this new book, uh, The Power of Self-Control. I know it's been out for a bit, uh, but this is a topic I'm fascinated by. If you don't already have this book, go and grab it. If you have one, go and grab one for a friend. Uh, Ryan, thank you for being back on the show. As always. Yeah, it's always great, man. It's great. I, I remember when um, I first met you, it was, it was such an inspiration for me because seeing you uncover stoicism for the modern world uh, definitely was 
parallel to how I felt about what I wanted to do for Vedic knowledge and Vedic wisdom. And it's been exceptional to watch it. And, and I love that. You, I hope there's more. I don't know. This is the end of the series, right? Like, no, this, no. Is the, this is two in a four book. Okay, so. good, good, good. Okay, okay. Yeah, you, you keep finding a way of doing that. I need to figure that out. Uh, but no, it's, it's great we're talking about this. And I love that you chose what I think today is considered as such an unsexy topic. And I don't know if you see it that way. No, of discipline, I mean. I do. I mean, especially because the ancients, uh, the, the word they used for discipline was temperance, which sounds even less, like discipline, we at least know, like, yeah. that there's like a kind of a coolness to it. But temperance feels like the opposite of fun, right? It feels like you're telling me what I can't do, all the things I have to avoid or all the things I have to stop short on. Yeah. And people don't like that, yeah. even though... When you actually think about the people who do whatever they want yeah. all the time. Yes. Actually, some of the most unhappy, miserable people in the entire world. <laughs> yeah. And it's, it's funny you say that now because I started thinking back to, to Vedic knowledge and the word is tapa, T-A-P-A. And, and it means austerity. or That's the closest uh, translation. And the idea that discipline is often compared to austerity Right, a, right, and and austerity. The purpose of it is not deprivation. The purpose of austerity is to be not corrupted, to be sustainable, right? To to avoid what is superfluous or unnecessary, and 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 it's not even about. I think it's not even about avoiding pleasure altogether. Like in the ancient world, the big in, in the Western ancient world, the big dispute is between the Epicureans and the Stoicism and, and the Stoics. And you'd think Epicureans are the lovers of pleasures and, uh, and the Stoics are the haters of pleasure. But even the Epicureans believed that any pleasure taken too far becomes a source of pain or suffering. So it's what we're really talking about. Then it comes down to this idea of temperance or balance. What is the right amount? Some things, the right amount is zero, but for most things, the right amount is some sort of moderate or midpoint. And it, it, you have to have wisdom and self-control to not only figure out what that is, but then to stop at that line. Yeah, yeah. And that's the hard part because I feel like society has gone in the direction of becoming addicted to pleasure yes. or pleasure-seeking. Where, from the Stoics' perspective, why did we even ever go down that road? Like, why did we leave wisdom and self-control or did we never have it at all and we've always been trying to balance it? Uh, yeah, I mean, I guess that's the big question is like, why do we take something that we like too far, Yeah. right? So the Epicureans would say like, look, drinking is great, but if you have a hangover the next day, was it actually so great? And so, you know, if you, if you push the, or the pleasure too far, it becomes not pleasurable. But in the moment, that feels very far away, right? <laughs> like in the moment, you want the thing now. Obviously, sex is this thing for people. It's like the, the thing you're attracted to in this moment, you're not thinking about the shame or the regret or the consequences or the pain or the loss or the grief. You're not thinking of all those things you're just thinking of right now. So I think a big part of this, this is where the wisdom comes in, the ability to step back and go, what am I going to think about this after I get it? What am I going to think about this later? And realizing that your mind is very good at tricking you. Just as your mind to often tells you like, stop, you're too tired, you can't go any further. You actually have a lot less left in the tank. Your mind also tells you, you need this thing, you won't regret it, it's amazing, you know, whatever. Yeah. And it, it's, it's really good at putting those blinders on. And so part of, I think, any meditative practice, any philosophical practice, any journaling practice 
is, is being able to argue with yourself a little bit, to step back and have that conversation about, well, is what I think about this true? Is the story I'm telling myself about this true? I think nowhere is this more important than for like ambitious people who have told themselves, I will be happy when I accomplish X, mm. right? Like of all the things we need to be most disciplined about, ambition is one of them. Because it tells you this lie that, after I become a New York Times bestseller, after I make a million dollars, after I get a gold medal, then I'll be good. My parents will be proud of me. I'll be happy. Then I can relax. And you have to have the perspective, the wisdom to go, was that ever been true ever in my life before? Has that ever been true in history? Yeah. And then go, oh, okay, no, I can't tell myself that lie. That doesn't mean you don't work really hard to do stuff, but you're not doing it under the false pretenses that it's going to be conditional to your happiness. Yeah, but there's a part of us that, and I and I love what you're saying, but there's a part of us that always believes that we are the exception, yes. that we yes. will know how to spend money better, yeah. that we'll know how to have love in our life better. Like we won't be the one who fumbles off the edge of a cliff. Like we, we're smarter than all our friends, even if we don't say that, we're wiser than the people who came before us. And that's, and that's ego is the enemy. But of course, like that, that idea, I think is what misleads us so much. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's like, okay, you're on the medal stand. You've just won the gold medal and you're not feeling happy for yourself. You're thinking, well, I could have done it faster. You're thinking, oh, I got to do it again. Right. Even in that moment, you're not able to think I'm doing it to myself right now, what I will be doing to myself in the future. And that's this sort of insidious thing. And you can understand why from an evolutionary perspective, it drives the species forward. You can also see the immense personal cost that it inflicts on us because it never allows us to be present or content or happy with what we have in that moment. Mm. And so I think, again, people think discipline is the, I always push myself to do better, do more. Discipline can also be curbing that very impulse, right? Like ordinary people, when we're talking about discipline, what we're talking about is getting off your butt, working out, resisting eating candy and eating nutritious food instead. It's, you know, managing your screen time. But I think for a lot of more disciplined people or for people who have tasted the rewards of discipline, you have to learn how to be disciplined about discipline, which is maybe the highest level of of the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Now we're, I guess now we've started talking about discipline as a tool to achieve daily or weekly, monthly, yearly tasks. But you're actually saying that we need to go back a bit. Like, how would you unpack that for how you're defining discipline there? Well, it's it's like, uh, what's the number one cause of injury for athletes? It's overtraining, yeah. right? So like, yeah, you're ordinary person. It's like, you're not training enough. You're not working hard enough. Yeah. But then at a more elite level, at a more accomplished level, actually the trouble is hey, the, the race isn't for six weeks. Like, you, do you want to peak now or do you want to peak at the right moment, right? Yeah. Um, or this is just a practice session. You don't have to go all out. Or, you know, it's a long season. Are you prepared for that? And so, you know, discipline has to be balanced with sustainability, with rest, relaxation, recuperation, recovery, all these other things. And that requires kind of a spiritual discipline, on not just hey, I can run an hour without getting tired, but like 
can I stop myself from doing that? Yeah. That's not what I should be doing in this moment. Yeah. And, and what I like about that is that I feel there's different phases and stages. Like in the first two years of my career where we would have met in New York and we went on a walk once as well, I think. And we, we were walking around the city and I remember talking about a few of these themes, but it was at that time in my life, I was working probably 18 hour days. Sure. Because I, I had to, in order to kind of break through that first level, yeah. I was still disciplined in the sense that I would make time to eat to some degree and, and meditate. And I would make some time to do a few things of rest, but generally I was working seven days a week, 18 hours a day. And I'm very grateful I did that. I don't look back and go, oh, I wasted two years. It was brilliant. But then in the last couple of years, I've taken my evenings back. And yeah. so I don't work after 6 p.m. It's just a rule. I don't want to work. I don't want to be on the phone. And I was talking to a friend and it's exactly what you said. He was saying to me, he was just like, well, don't you get less done? And I was like, no, I get more done. Sure. Because I know how much I have to get done. I'm far more attentive and focused. And then I'm not working at 9 p.m. when I can rest and recuperate. And now the next day I'm, I'm better for it. And so I, I hear that idea that that is also a discipline. Yes. Although it could be seen as you're being lazy in the evening. And I think it's the question of, well, is it easy for you to do that? Yes or no, yeah, right? It's yeah. hard. It's actually harder for you, I imagine, to say I'm stopping at six yeah. than it is to say I'm going to work all night till I fall asleep at my desk, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> Yeah, I could do that, yeah. If my wife's not around, I could work every weekend and evening. Yeah. And also it's realizing that you have multiple things that you're trying to do simultaneously. So yeah, sure, working, continuing to work 18-hour days may help you continue to advance in your career. But if one of the also the other things you're trying to work on is to stay married or to better yet have a happy marriage uh, or you have children or you have your health or whatever, like you, you were telling me before we recorded that you like you got in at 3 a.m. last night. Let's say you're a person who always wakes up very early. Like I'm a person who wakes up early. Yeah, but then I also have to understand that sleep is a discipline. And so if some changes outside my control mean that I didn't go to bed to a certain time, the fact that I wake up at five, that's a bad idea. And it actually requires, it, you wouldn't think that sleep discipline would be a thing, but in the military, they talk about that sleep discipline. You got to get your hours because you make bad decisions mm. when you're not rested mm. and other people bear the consequences of those decisions. And so deciding, hey, I'm going to skip this thing that feels comfortable to me to do, that feels natural for me to do, that I feel like I'm letting some part of myself down by not doing I actually have to be the bigger, more self-controlled person and say, in this moment, I'm not going to do that, right? And, and I think at the end of the day, self-discipline is the ability to have an emotion, an instinct, a feeling to do a thing, and then to catch yourself and go, is that actually the right thing to do, yes or no? And sometimes it is. Sometimes it's, hey, it's cold outside, and it's 5 a.m., and it's still dark, and I don't want to get up but I have to get up because I've made these commitments, I'm behind, blah, blah, blah. Then other times it is to stay in bed, right? Just like, you know, sometimes uh, you feel that surge of temper coming on and you have to go, no, that's not a good, like it's always the ability to step back, put the emotion, the instinct, the opinion to the test. And I think you learn this in meditation. I think you learn this for stoicism in the journaling of going like, here's the thing, and I can choose it or not. I can choose to identify it or not. It is not me. I, the Stoics have this word ascent, right? Not like ascent up a mountain, but A-S-S-E-N-T. Do you ascent to the feeling or not? Do you agree to it, 
rubber stamp it, approve it, go along with it or yeah, not. Do you subscribe? Yeah. Yeah. That's what discipline is, is about. What do you assent to and what do you not assent to? Yeah. I, I wonder, I want to go over tangent. I want to come back to that because I actually really like that point. But a few words ago, there was something that you sparked for me. Sometimes I feel like with work, it's doable. Sometimes with even our partner or with friends, it's possible to say no, to be disciplined. I find like, and I want to ask you this from your perspective, what about a sense of dad guilt? Like we talk a lot about mom guilt and, you know, if it was speaking to mom, I'd ask about mom guilt in this scenario. But from a dad guilt point of view, like you're a dad, I, I you know, and I, I see you wanting to be a good dad and, and you're very involved with your kids, but at the same time, you're a writer and you're in a bookstore and you're doing activist work. Like there's so many things that you do. Do you ever feel like that's like the hardest place where discipline, because it's like, even if a dad comes home at 3 a.m. Yeah. And the kid wants him at 4 a.m., like, does the dad stay up? Like, what does the dad do? How does it work? Well, it's so insidious. What we do is we go like, I'm doing this for my family, mm -hmm. right? And it's like, are you? Or are you doing it for you? Are you doing it for the money? How can you be doing it for your family if you don't see those people as a result of what you're doing? Someone told me uh, many years ago, they said, love is spelled T-I-M-E. And I think about that all the time. I mean, obviously, I always have things that take me away more than I would like them to be. And I suppose I could do nothing, but that would also leave me unfulfilled. That would not be me setting the example I want to set for my kids. But at the end of the day, realizing that everything I say yes to also means saying no to someone or something else. And in some ways, I try to use that dad guilt a little constructively. I try to go, okay, this person's asking me to do this thing, or this person's offering me money to do this thing, or this is some cool opportunity. They want me to go hella skiing in British Columbia or something. And I go, I'm, I don't want to say no to this cool opportunity. I don't want to miss this memory. I don't want to hurt this person's feelings. And then I go, but I am hurting a person's feelings. I am saying no to a memory. Like I am taking something away from someone. And that person is a five-year-old and they're going to feel it far more deeply. Someone else will take my spot on that plane to British Columbia. No one will spend that time with my kids. And so I try to use that guilt constructively mm. in the sense that I'm, I'm reminding myself always that saying yes to one thing means saying no to something else. And that conversely saying no means saying yes, right? And that I always, as much as I can, I want to be saying yes to the things that actually matter to me. And I want to be putting my money where my mouth is. It's like, if, if someone looked at your account, you say you, you put your family first, you say family is important, blah, blah, blah. But then if I looked at your calendar, what would it show, right? If there was a custody hearing or, you know, if you were being investigated, if you were being audited, what would the receipts show? Do you actually value them? Do you put them first? And like, it should be pretty, pretty obvious whether that's true or not. Yeah, no, I, I have an exercise in Think Like a Monk where I ask people to do their time audit for the week. And it's literally that where it's like, and, and it's against your values because someone's values may be different, but the idea that your bank statement and your schedule show your values more than what you say. Yes. Right? The words that come out of our mouth are not actually our values. There are aspirations. Yeah. Those are the values you wish you had, but the values that actually go, what do you spend your money on and what do you spend your time on? Like that's far more what your real values are. Yeah. I think about that. I, I saw this interview with Jimmy Carter many years ago and he, he, has this sort of crisis of faith and he goes like, if I was put on trial for being a Christian, 
would I be convicted, mm. right? So it's not what you say, not what you think, not what you wish, but like, what do the actions show? And I think about that with Marcus Aurelius, who I write a lot about, the, the Stoic emperor. Like, he never identifies explicitly as a Stoic. And one of his translators says, you know, he never even says the word Stoicism like in his writings, mm. but he's considered this philosopher emperor. And he probably still would have been even if his writings had never survived because the deeds are there. There's a Latin expression, acta non verba, like deeds, not words. And so you have to always think not what do I write about? What do I think about? What do I want to be true? But what do the actions show? And um, no one is perfect. And of I think not. anyone auditing themselves uh, is going to be, there's going to be some disappointments, but you want like the big statements of priority to be there. And to go back to the idea of guilt, when you're looking at it, you shouldn't like whip yourself and feel, but you should be like, okay, this is not the painting, the picture that I want to paint. And that you're lucky enough in that moment to catch it now, not when you're 80, you know, not on your deathbed, you're, you're, you've caught it now. And so what changes are you going to make yeah. to, to get closer between the ideal and the reality? Yeah. On Purpose with Jay Shetty is brought to you by Booking.com, Booking.Yeah. Many of you know that one of the most important aspects of my life is my connection with others. Travel has become one of the best ways for me to connect with people, whether that be my community, my family, friends, or loved ones, or all of you. Most of my family lives outside of the US, so traveling around the holidays, birthdays, or other special occasions is something that we're accustomed to. As we grow older, oftentimes our families or loved ones end up living in different areas as us making it challenging to get together due to various schedules and commitments. With Booking.com, I'm able to efficiently book travel and accommodations for everyone in my family so that we can spend quality time together. They also make it easy to book travel for the various types of travelers in my family so that each person in my family can authentically be the traveler they want to be, no matter the destination. Once a year, my family takes a trip together to a US destination where none of us live or are visited. We find this helpful in making sure that everyone is truly present and able to unplug from their normal routines, resulting in more meaningful conversations and connections. Experiencing new places with those close to you allows you to bond over a shared experience. Booking.com's breadth and variety of accommodations in the US has made the destination selection and booking process not only easy, but fun. Travel can also foster new connections. Visiting different cities has allowed me to build connections with all of you, my community, most of whom I've never met in person and otherwise would have not crossed paths with. The in-person relationships that are built and strengthened through travel is something that each of us can benefit from. Book whoever you want to be on booking.com, booking.yeah. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Atna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com forward slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health and Atna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. 
yeah, absolutely. And and something that, that's interesting that's coming out for me here is that pretty much everything we do every day can be defined by thinking, feeling, and doing. But I think we're living at a time where we're stuck in the feeling generation. So we do things because we want to feel a certain way, but then when we feel things, we don't know what to do with it. So I'll give an example of what I mean by that. If you, if we feel guilt, most of us don't know how to shift from that feeling into thinking and doing something different in order to not feel that guilt again. Yes. And if we want to feel happy, we just try and feel happy, not realizing that you have to change your thoughts and what you do in order to feel happiness or whatever it may be. What I'm trying to get at there is like, that to me sounds like a discipline too. Like, but we've gone so into feeling because I think for so long, thinking and doing were the only things talked about and we didn't feel enough. I think realizing that almost all the things you want in life are accidental byproducts of habits, processes, systems, routines, right? So Viktor Frankl famously said that happiness can't be pursued, it must ensue. It's the result of getting those big things right. And then you just feel this kind of feeling of happiness as a byproduct. You don't, as you said, you don't go, today I must feel happy, right? You, it's, it's the result of having meaning and purpose and, and taking the right actions. And so people sometimes look at the books that I've written and they're like, what, like, how did you publish so many books? And it's like, publishing is not what I think about. I think about writing. Mm. I wake up every day and write, and the accidental byproduct of that is the publishing, right? And so good habits, good routines, like if you want a happier home life, it's like, are you spending more time there? Are you, you know, how are you setting up systems or processes that the result is that outcome, right? You control what you put in, that the outcome happens or it doesn't happen. And I think so often we, we just, you're right, we just want the feeling. And so we try to cheat it or steal it, or we feel guilty that we don't have it, when really you could start small right now and, and just get yourself closer to it. Mm. What, what do you think is the best discipline you've built like over time? Like, is it writing? Obviously that would be the obvious one, but is there another one that you think underpins that success? Like, is there a discipline you've worked on the longest? Well, I think writing is such a sedentary sort of uh, intellectual cerebral thing that I try to balance it out with like a physical practice. So I try to do something hard every single day, running, swimming, biking. I do a walk once a day. Like I do something hard every day. And part of what that is, is transferable back to the practice, right? Because again, it comes down to the, you don't want to do it. It's hard. It's not going the way you want it but you've cultivated the muscle of being able to push through that. Like there's lots of claims about the health benefits of cold plunges mm -hmm. and they may or may not exist. That's not why I do it, right? Yeah. The muscle for me is, is the cranking of the knob of the looking at the cold plunge at my house and going, it is going to be unpleasant to get in there, mm. but I, I have the ability to force myself to do that. That's the muscle that you want to cultivate. Yeah. Um, and I, I think, you know, people want to be the person on the other side of that, but they don't realize that the way you do it is by just starting it, just starting it. Yeah, it's so true. I, I, I can relate to so much of that in my own life. And when, when you're saying that, it's, I feel like today, most of what I do, I'd say I spend a lot, I'd say I spend like 75% of my life outside of my comfort zone. I am constantly yeah. doing things that demand more from me then I believe I'm skilled and able to accomplish. Sure. Yeah, yeah. And in a healthy way, in, in a good sense, because I feel challenged. 
And I feel that challenge forces me to grow my skills, which then meet a new challenge and then that keeps growing. But then I find myself in my personal life often resorting to comfort uh, because I need to kind of cushion the amount of like sure, sure, pressure sure. and stress. And so it's like this balance. For me, I'm at that that place in my life where I'm like, okay, I'm pushing so much. I need my personal life to be super like, you know, cushioned to some degree. It, it is interesting, right? We will take, uh, and Seneca points this out in one of his letters, like we'll push ourselves, we'll take risks uh, to, to succeed financially, to succeed in business, to succeed in our careers, to buttress our reputations. But then we don't want to do it in the other places where most of us would admit it actually matters, mm. right? My favorite passages in meditations, Marcus Aurelius is like a better wrestler, but not a better forgiver of faults, a better right, right, friend right. in tight places. He, he's pointing out how we'll go like, yeah, I'm trying to like, you'll talk to someone that have this well laid out plan for how they're trying to increase their back squat or their mile time or how they're trying to, to they've, got, they've, they've got these aggressive goals for their stock price or, or you know, how many copies they want to sell of this thing or they have, we have really clear financial and professional goals. And then in our personal life, we just wing it. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not saying that I didn't, Yeah, I didn't mean that, but I know what you mean. Yeah, 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 yeah. I yeah. love that point. And I think the point is like, you have to be challenging yourself in your personal life, also getting vulnerable, you know, getting outside your comfort zone, having the conversations that you, like, I think it's because our professional stuff is so much more quantifiable. Mm. And then there's other people are looking at it, whereas the other stuff is private. Mm -hmm. And so we, we just, we hold ourselves to different standards. And you yeah. think about what that costs us in terms of a place you get to in your marriage in 10 years that had you thought more consciously about or put one-tenth of the focus yeah. on, maybe you could have got there in one year and then had nine years of enjoying it. Yeah. No, that I fully agree with. And I, maybe I didn't clarify. When I said comfort, I mean more, apart from like my sleep schedule, I have so many routines that are already set up that I try and make my personal life more comfortable because, as in my individual life of my own self-care because I find I'm pushing myself in so many areas. But I love where you took it to because I think that's the critical one, right? It's like what you're kind of leaning towards is most people will become people they don't want to be in order to achieve something. And that external pursuit often does that. By the end of building a billion dollar company or whatever it may be, you end up going, well, I don't even like the person I am anymore or I've lost the person who I thought I was. Whereas the pursuit of doing it inwardly with your family, with your friendships, the, the openness that's required, chances are you'll become the person you want to be. Like chances are you'll become someone that you're proud of being. And I think that's such, I want to dive into that. That is such a powerful way of looking at it. And you're saying it's because of the quantifiability, which, which I think there's truth in. I also think it's the, uh, it's harder. Sure. It's, it's harder, harder because... Like you're saying, there's no external reward. There's no number that proves you did it. And it's fluctuating way more because people's emotions, like anyone in your family and friends, you can't control it. You could, you can control or master an algorithm or the stock market to some degree. But with a person, you can't do any of that because you can't set something up and then be like, you're going to stay this way. Well, it's like you get so used to the control and the power that yeah. you have from the mastery of your professional domain, right? Like when I sit down to write, I'm in control, I'm comfortable. This is a place that I have carved out for myself. 
when I am arguing with my wife or I am dealing with a three-year-old who's having a meltdown, I'm not in control mm. and I'm humbled by it and I'm struggling with it. And I don't feel like I've got it because I have so much less. I've literally never done that before. Yeah, yeah. And, I'll, and I'll have such a short window where I'll ever have to do it, right? It's not, it's not like, oh, I've been in this place in a book 12 times, yeah. right? Like I've only had one five-year-old. Yeah. And so, you know, it's just so much more challenging. It's just a much more multidimensional, you know, N of one, like difficult thing. And so it it's going to demand more of you. And I think, I think it's like, look, optimizing your professional life or maximizing your professional life, very unlikely to improve your personal life. But if you have optimized and maximized and improved your personal life, gotten your house in order, you're going to be better at what you do. Mm. Or you're going to care less in some degrees about things that used to bother you so much. And so which one are you going to focus on, right? Because yeah. you can get, you can be a titan in your industry and then be a total amateur at home, right? And I think I'm going to go where it's easy. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, that's, and that's the thing. I think discipline often gets applied to the titan in the industry, not the amateur at home. Yeah. And that's how we think about discipline. We think about discipline as what can I achieve through this? Yeah. Uh, in, in an external sense. Yeah, and you, At least today, that's the language. And you can get away with so much more. If you're really talented, you know, you can be a jerk, right? You can demand a lot of people because you're paying these people, right? Like, I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying that there's accommodations that are made for you. And, and sort of insidiously, the more successful you are, the more needed you are, the more accommodations you are. But there's none of that in the other area. And so you have to, there's some humility required, right? You, you're meeting equals on an equal playing field and the discipline to say like, yeah, I'm, I'm going to wrestle with that. I'm going to try to get better. I'm, I'm not going to allow myself to, to do these following bad habits. That, that takes a, a certain amount of self-control and focus and, and discipline. Yeah. I guess, I guess one of the biggest challenges with discipline is that we're trying to destroy a habit that we hate. Like there's this idea that it just has to break and go, right? If you have a habit that you don't yeah, like yeah. about yourself, whatever that may be, it's like you're just, or at least I found when I'm coaching clients and working with people is that they have this like bitter feeling towards this thing that they have yeah. and they want it to go at all costs, but that almost makes you hold on to it harder. Like that makes you grip onto it sure. and wrestle with it more. And I remember when, when, we, when I lived in India, a lot of the time, the analogy that was given or the, or the metaphor that was given to, to meditate on because we'd see it all the time was like snake skin. And the idea was that when snakes shed their skin, they just slither out. They don't, it doesn't like, they don't one day just go, I mean, they don't even have- It's not like the Hulk. They, yeah, yeah. They, yeah, they're not like the Hulk where it's like, <laughs> like yeah. snakes just slither out and then their skin gets left behind and then it, you know, they'll grow more. And so the idea that it's, it's such a natural organic process of if you just slither, if you just move forward, you naturally shed. Um, yeah, well, I want that, to get your That's on that. the beauty of process, right? You don't sit down and go, I have to do this right now. What do I have to do today? What yeah. are the small steps? And and you get great by minor improvements compounded on top of each other day in and day out, showing up day in and day out. And that's the same. Uh, hey, we were fighting like crazy six months ago and now things are awesome. Why is that? Because they made a change and you made a change and you made a response and 
it changed in response to their change, and it compounded, and now you're here. That work can fall away at any moment, you have to rebuild it, but I think, you know, the Buddhists talk about willful will, like almost the more intentional you are about it, that's the irony too, is we're talking about how, you know, being intentional in your professional life often pays off. Being intentional, having clear expectations, wants, desires in your personal life is harder because it depends on other people, uh, people who are not like you, people who did not sign up for that. And I think one of the things you learn having kids and then also being married is that like assent in that same sense of like acquiescing to things, adjusting to things. Like I'm a routine person. Kids don't care about your routine. They fall asleep when they <laughs> fell asleep. Yeah, yeah. And you have, to, you have to adjust. Like you're no longer the center of the universe. Yeah. And that is such an important thing that you have to figure out and adjust and accommodate towards. You're the master of the universe here but that you leave that behind when you walk through the front door. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was talking to uh, Amar from Yes Theory. I don't know if you know the guys at Yes Theory. Yeah, they're awesome. And we've had them on the show before, but I was talking to Amar the other day and they just released their um, project, Iceman, I think their documentary, first time like their feature documentary, but he was talking about this and he was saying that when they built Yes Theory, the goal was like, how can we say yes to things we would usually say no to, right? Like that was the obvious point. And now he's learned that it's equally important to say no. But the part that really hit me when he was explaining it, and I think we'd, we both vibe with the idea, he was saying that, and it's something you said earlier, he said, I have to start saying yes to the things I find hardest. And so he was saying that today, no matter how many marathons he's done, no matter how many crazy expeditions they've gone on, no matter how many countries they survive with no money, he said the hardest thing for him to do is sit with his thoughts for 15 minutes. Yeah. Like he was like, that's the hardest thing. He goes, I don't look forward to doing that. He said, if someone told me to train for something, he goes, I look forward to that. But if someone told me to sit down with my thoughts for 15 minutes, he goes, I don't look forward to it. So that's what I'm doing. And he was saying, that's why he's trying to build that. And he was like, that's his new definition of seeking discomfort because he said, when people come up to him and say, do you want to build like a, a million dollar company, a billion dollar, whatever? he's like, I can get excited about that. But he goes, I don't get excited about it. Is that a good sense of people finding what discipline is for them? Or how do you see that? I mean, I think restraint is the hardest thing, right? Uh, Blaise Pascal in the 1500s said, uh, all of humanity's problems stem from our inability to sit quietly in a room alone. It was hard 500 years ago. It's harder now when you have a cell phone in your pocket, when you could get on a flight and travel anywhere you want in the world, and there's unlimited distractions, opportunities, things to get excited about. Like, it's hard to hold the mind still, to be physically still, or, or maybe not to be physically still, but have the mind still while the body is in motion. This requires, like, so much discipline, so much uh, self-control, so much self-awareness, right? Even to... To, to understand that it's hard for you, that it's something that you uh, are naturally averse to or avoid is a step in that journey to getting better at it. Because a lot of people are just doing, 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 and they're not even aware they're running away from something. They're not even aware that it makes them uncomfortable to be still. So I think we have to understand it's this journey and that hopefully as you go, you get more and more comfortable because at the end of the day, that's the one constant in life. Wherever you go, there you are, there you are, as the expression goes. Like you're there. And if you can't get comfortable with that, can't get in touch with that, you can't see what's there, I think you're gonna wake up one day and realize I did all of this stuff 
to get away from something that's been inside me the whole time. And that's very, very sad. That is, that's, yeah, that's, well, that's the, that's the inconvenient truth of it, right? Like that's the hard part that you chased pleasure for so long that you completely missed what was it, what was already there. But I, I think, is it that we don't, what is your take from studying it? Like, is it that we don't know the benefits enough? Is it that we don't like processes enough? It is, is it that we're just addicted and there isn't a, because I look at, and, and I do think looking at very daily habit changes is the easiest way to build the muscle to go, I can do this. So I always give the example of when I met my wife, I was addicted to sugar. Like I, I genuinely was, and I didn't even know it. I had a Sprite and a chocolate bar every day without thinking about it. It's how I got through college. It was life. When I was a monk, I didn't have either of those things but that was more of a suppression and there was lots of other interesting things to do or I didn't need that kind of energy. When I came back- I You're went, like the convict who's sober in prison. Yeah, Just because exactly. you don't have access to Exactly, it. Yeah, I didn't yeah. have access to it. And I didn't, I definitely built a discipline where I didn't feel like I needed it. But then when I came back to the real world, all I wanted was chocolate and sugar. And so when I met my wife, it's like, you know, we've been married for six years now together for 10. And she like, at first she would just educate me like she would just tell me because she's a dietitian and nutritionist this is her job she's laying out all the all the dangers of sugar then she's like taking it out of the like home like it's not around anymore it's not accessible and then almost like it's taken six years and i would say now i'm at a place where the habit has really transformed that's like a six-year journey yeah, yeah and obviously it probably happened like halfway through i'd say like probably it happened three years ago where i really started cutting out sugar but it needed a coach my wife was the coach it needed a uh obedient or submissive student. I, I trust my wife on this area. It wasn't like, I, was, I didn't have an ego about it. She knows more than me about the body. And then on top of that, it needed a focus in the sense that in my health, we kind of did it one at a time without even trying. Whereas like we took out sugar first, we started working out next. Like she was, she kind of did that even unconsciously. It just took so much. And I go, and I know obviously with the Stoics, we talk about mentoring and coaching and there's always this cross learning. But I feel like now we're all trying to do it on our own. We are, and we're also expecting that it just happens. That it's yeah. this like epiphany. If knowing what to do was enough, everyone would be in great shape. No one would have any of these illnesses or problems that we have. It's so much more complicated than that. And I, th I, I do try to remind people that it's a, it's a journey that you're on your whole life. There's passages in meditations where Marcus Aurelius is going, you're an old man. And you're still losing your temper. You're still worried about what other people think. He's like, you're still afraid of death and it's almost here. And, and realizing that if the wisest people in the world struggled their whole life with this thing, the idea that you, who were lucky enough to hear about it in your 20s or 30s or 40s, that you're just going to get it, it's naive and it's also unfair to yourself. The question is, are you getting better at it as you go, right? Seneca says, how do I know I'm making progress? And my philosophy says, I've begun to become a better friend to myself. So discipline is not just squeezing blood from the stone. It's not just whipping yourself. It's hiring a coach. It's, uh, you know, setting reachable goals as you go. It's, it's stepping back and giving yourself credit and saying, how far we've come, man. Like we're doing great, right? It's not, it's not just this sort of like in your face, like 
how are you not there yetness? Yeah. Right? It's it's a journey, and you're not supposed to really ever get there. That it's like the horizon; it's always a little bit further away. And so, you know, I think when we hear discipline, I think we think of like the Marine drill sergeant. Yeah, and this is kind of transformative. You didn't have discipline, and now you do. We should also think about it the like having a discipline. It is a thing you do your whole life and realizing that that's how we should measure this progress. On Purpose with Jay Shetty is brought to you by Booking.com, Booking.Yeah. Many of you know that one of the most important aspects of my life is my connection with others. Travel has become one of the best ways for me to connect with people, whether that be my community, my family, friends, or loved ones, or all of you. Most of my family lives outside of the US, so traveling around the holidays, birthdays, or other special occasions is something that we're accustomed to. As we grow older, oftentimes our families or loved ones end up living in different areas as us, making it challenging to get together due to various schedules and commitments. With Booking.com, I'm able to efficiently book travel and accommodations for everyone in my family so that we can spend quality time together. They also make it easy to book travel for the various types of travelers in my family so that each person in my family can authentically be the traveler they want to be no matter the destination. Once a year, my family takes a trip together to a US destination where none of us live or are visited. We find this helpful in making sure that everyone is truly present and able to unplug from their normal routines, resulting in more meaningful conversations and connections. Experiencing new places with those close to you allows you to bond over a shared experience. Booking.com's breadth and variety of accommodations in the US has made the destination selection and booking process not only easy, but fun. Travel can also foster new connections. Visiting different cities has allowed me to build connections with all of you, my community, most of whom I've never met in person and otherwise would have not crossed paths with. The in-person relationships that are built and strengthened through travel is something that each of us can benefit from. Book whoever you want to be on booking.com, booking.yeah. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Atna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com forward slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health and Atna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. I think though that that's what we're banging our head against is that the mind has been so far removed from the idea that things take time, yeah. that patience is required, that one step at a time. Like we hear those things all the time, but there's literally nothing we do in our lives that requires us to move one step at a time anymore. Like it just doesn't work. And we know these examples, like whether you're ordering food to your house or whether you're getting this delivered or whether you jump into an Uber or Lyft, we know that. But I found it really interesting recently, like I just went through a double hernia surgery and it's not life-threatening and it's meant to be routine, but it's far worse than the doctors make it out to be. 
And the journey back to feeling like I can operate normally, it's been two months now, and I'd say I'm 75% there. I would say that the first four weeks were like learning how to walk again. Yeah. And I have never, ever moved that slow in life in a good way. As in that every movement of the body or the mind had to be slow. Yes. Because if I moved fast, I could potentially relapse. Yeah. So I couldn't, I can't, I still can't pick anything above like uh, 15 pounds if not allowed. Uh, I, I couldn't for that first month, like walk for the first week. And then I had to shimmy for the rest of it. And I had to like, when I sat down on a chair, I had to be so mindful. I was like, wow, I thought I was mindful. Yeah. And having this surgery has made me the most mindful person ever. I've, I've never eaten that slow because the digestion was harder and there was pain in this area. And so it was the first time in a long time I felt that present. And I consider myself to be a present person. I think that the root of it is this illusion we have that we're in control, right? That we're deciding how things go. And then we have an injury or a problem or something that disrupts it. And we are rudely, but also uh, kindly reminded how little control we have. I remember when I, was, I, I moved across the country, I was writing my first book. The two days before I was supposed to start riding my bike, New Orleans, I get stuck in the streetcar tracks, I go over the handlebars and I break my left elbow and I'm left-handed. And so like all of the way that I was thinking about writing this book goes out the window for like six weeks. Mm. I couldn't get like the adrenaline or the endorphins that I needed just to function as a person. So I had to go on these like long walks. So, you know, I get the news and it's like, okay, I'm not going to be able to work or think for like six weeks. This is a total dead loss for me. But then I started taking these walks, like hour, two hour, three hour walks just around. And what do you know? I start writing the book in my head on these walks. Mm. If I had gotten things the way I wanted them to go, it would have been far less advantageous to me than me having to respond to the way they did end up going. Mm, mm. So at the core of stoicism is this idea that we don't control what happens, we control how we respond to what happens. It seems like it's this curse, this human frailty or weakness that like we're not in control. But our superpower is our ability to respond to that, to find good in it, to be made better for it. And you, you go through this thing and you realize, oh, this is an opportunity to practice all of the things that I ordinarily take for granted, I assume I have. There's this one Japanese Zen master, actually the, the Zen master from uh, Zen and the Art of Archery. And he's at the end I of his life, one, yeah. he's, he's dying and he, he, he goes to like, urinate in the snow and it's red, he's like bleeding, he's dying and his students are alarmed. He goes, this too is practice. All of these things that we experienced that we didn't want or we thought they should go a different way, they're actually the opportunity to practice the way mm. or the logos as the Stoics would call it in the way it's actually meant to do. Mm. If we choose to be present, recognize it and take that opportunity instead of fighting it or resenting it or wishing it were otherwise. Even, I love that point that you made that, that even that was practice. Yeah. That is beautiful. Like that's, that's magical. Like that idea that even in that, worst scenario at the end of all of it. it was still practice and if we could only wrap our hand around that because i think we still think of practice and performing practice and arrival practice in the end we still see it as separate and and there is nothing that's separate like that tree outside that's huge is still growing and being nourished 
It's just you don't see it anymore. Yeah. And I almost, sometimes what I do with clients is I'll give everyone a seed and I'll ask them to plant it and take care of it. And that's like an old way of just learning growth because it's so painful to be watering something every day and not seeing it grow, only to realize it is growing. Or uh, I remember something they gave us uh, in the monastery was like, they gave us this rope. It was like this really old rope and it was already tied and we were asked to untie it. And it's like most of us spent the whole of the first day we got it trying to untie it and failing. Yeah. Only by like day 21 to realize all we had to do is pull it a little bit every day and hopefully it would unravel because it was so tight. And so even if you sat there all day, you would just, you'd go mental and you wouldn't achieve anything else. Right. Yeah. It's it was the willful will, right? Yeah. It's like wanting yeah. it a certain way, needing it a certain way, trying to force it as opposed to stepping back and letting it be what it is. It's like the way our mind works, whatever is happening now, you will look back on sometime in the future as formative to who you become, right? And yet in this moment, all we're doing is trying to make it something other than it is, <laughs> right? Like we will look back on COVID and see the, the good in it, the lessons that came from it, the reminders it gave us, the weird experiences we had, the connections, all of that, we'll look at that. But in that moment, all we're thinking about is when this will be over, whose fault it is, you know, what it's cost us, right? Freud says, in, in retrospect, the struggle will strike you as most beautiful. But it seems, it's such, a, it's such a shame, so unnecessary to deprive yourself of understanding the beauty of it now. Certainly perspective adds to it, it allows you to see it differently. But what if you could just not feel guilty, worried, anxious, resentful, like, you know, in the future, this will be a story, right? You'll, you'll have learned, but you could give yourself the gift of at least some of that now by accepting it and just seeing it as what it is in front of you, that it's yeah. practice. Yeah, yeah. And the, and the challenge, I guess, is that because we've not had an experience, maybe in our early childhood or in our teens, where we saw that, where it was like, we went through a difficulty, we built discipline, and we got over it or we learned from it, as you're saying, I find that a lot of people have experienced difficulty, but then they were given comfort or shelter or the difficulty was somehow removed or left. So you never got the opportunity to build the discipline muscle, if that makes sense. Like my, my wife will have to talk about like, for her, if she went through a difficulty, like her parents would come and save the day, Yeah, right? Someone would swoop in and solve the issue. Her sister would do her homework for her. And so as that happened more and more and more, it created this behavior of someone will save the day that I don't need to build a discipline around this. Obviously saving is coming from a good place. The other thing we do is we tell, it's so bad that that happened to you. I'm so sorry, you're this victim, right? Like uh, the first year of COVID, they would describe for kids that this was like a lost year. And I just remember thinking like how- That language, yeah. Pa patronizing, but also self-fulfilling that, was for kids. Like uh, when I would talk to my grandparents or old people that lived through the depression or the second world war, which were by the way, a lot longer than COVID, they weren't like, oh, it was a lost time. It was a transformative, formative experience that in retrospect made them who they were that maybe even if you'd asked them if they would have wanted things to be different, they would have said no. And we have the power to, to transform whatever we're going through into that thing. 
So yeah, by rescuing someone, you're depriving them of that thing, but also by telling them that there's no, there's nothing in this thing that it's indisputably, inarguably bad is to deprive them of the agency, the perspective, the gift that they have in front of them if they choose to see it that way. And we should emerge from this period, at the very least, as you said, like if you haven't been through stuff like this before, you just lived through an event of historic proportions. Like you just lived through event that your kids and your grandchildren, future generations will marvel at. And you emerged unscathed, maybe even improved in some ways. Like you, you should emerge from this with a real sense of what you're capable of enduring and surviving and adjusting towards. And that should give you a lot of confidence as you wake up and you experience things that are so microscopic compared to that thing, yeah. right? And and you should feel armed with a certain set of weapons or tools that maybe you didn't have before. Like yeah. you've been knocked around and you didn't get knocked down. That's yeah. that's powerful. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and in my own little way, it's like in while I was going through my surgery, it was exactly that. Where it's like. I can either sit here and think this is the worst because it did feel like the worst for someone who's active, always on planes and always traveling, always working to, to be completely off. And it wasn't even restful because it was painful. Like it wasn't restful time. Everyone's like, we oh, didn't work for a month. It must've been amazing. I was like, well, no, I was in pain. Yeah. But the idea that my mind at the time was like, this is the worst. I hate this. And when's it going to be over, right? Which is the same as COVID, yeah. which is the same as anything. Like those are the three thoughts that go through our head pretty much, whether it's surgery, COVID or anything else that's going on. And having to reframe those thoughts in the moment yeah. made it become a really beautiful process at the time. And now a sense of gratitude for it having moved on. But that's what I'm hearing from you. It's like, you will reflect, well, hopefully you'll reflect afterwards, but there is a bit of reconfiguration that has to happen at the time. Yeah, there's a story about Phil Jackson when he's a coach of the Lakers. He gets this back surgery, super bad back surgery, and he can't stand on the sideline. Mm. He has to sit in a chair. And the way they had him sit, it's like a, a row back. And so suddenly all the, the things that he's comfortable with as a coach are not possible. He's not able to pace the sidelines, get up in people's faces, intervene, direct people. He just has to sit back and he has to watch. It's like the antithesis of his coaching style. And yet, and he's a, a sort of a, a Zen Buddhist kind of yeah, sage yeah, yeah. guy, yeah, yeah. he realizes that this is practice. That he, he realizes that now the team's having to come to him. Now the team's having to solve some of the problems. He's having to explore a different way of communicating. He's having to communicate verbally better than physically. It's a way to change, adjust. He's forced to do it differently and thus learns some things he wants to continue doing differently, now realizes he was taking for granted certain things that are actually super important, right? And so you can always take from this, like it's this forced lifestyle experiment. Just yeah. see it as that, right? Like COVID, the biggest forced lifestyle experiment in human history. Things that people said were impossible had to become possible, remote work, you know, e-commerce, all these things. And then you want to throw that away by saying, I can't wait for things to go back to normal right? It's like normal is what caused this, right? Normal was you before you learned the things that you learned in that intervening time. And for COVID, for, for Phil Jackson's back surgery, insert whatever disruptive event you're undergoing in your life. Yeah, You don't want things to go back to how they were. You want them to go 
to a new place where you have the old perspective and the new perspective fused into something new. When, when Marx really says the impediment to action advances action, what stands in the way becomes the way, the Zen expression is the obstacle is the path. Same east-west coming to the same idea. It's like this thing has opportunities inside it to make you better should you choose to accept them. Yeah, and, and that's what I like. It's not the simplistic idea of, and, and I'm always trying to address this, it's not the simplistic idea of look for the positive in the negative, right? Like that's not what we're saying here. This isn't the idea of like, oh, there's a... Uh, a, a beautiful side to this. That's not the point. Let's let's get into that a bit because I feel like people kind of simplify and go, oh no, that just, yeah, we'll just look for the silver lining, which is not what we're saying. Well, do you know the Stockdale paradox? No, tell me. So James Stockdale, he studies Stoic philosophy and then he's shot down over Vietnam he's, it, it, and he's taken prisoner. It's been seven years horribly tortured in this Vietnamese prison camp. Afterwards, he's speaking to Jim Collins who, wrote, who writes Good to Great. Yeah, Good to Great. Yeah. And, and, he formulates what becomes known as the Stockdale Paradox. Jim Collins says, who has the worst trouble in the prison camp? And Stockdale says, oh, that's easy, the optimists, right? The people who thought, I'm going to be out by Christmas. I'm going to be out by the spring. This isn't going to be hard. When Stockdale's parachuting into this camp, he says, I am leaving the world of technology and entering the world of Epictetus. He says, it's going to be seven years at least. But he said, he said, the first step is I had to unflinchingly accept the reality of my situation, which is that I might not get out, which is that I'm probably going to be tortured, which is that I'm not in control, which is that there's so much unknown pain and suffering ahead. I have to accept that. This is not going to be fun. This is not going to be easy. He says, but simultaneously, I said to myself, if I get out, I want to have transformed this into something that in retrospect, I would not have traded away. That's the paradox of what we're talking about. Stuff happens, life gets in the way, you lose someone, your company goes bankrupt, the market shifts, you know, a natural disaster, your life can get flipped upside down at a moment's notice. You have to unflinchingly accept the reality of that situation, the unfairness, the unexpectedness of it, your blamelessness or your blameworthiness for it and then simultaneously go, okay, I'm not saying this is wonderful, that I'm glad it happened, but I can make choices now that derive positive benefits from this, that make me better for having gone through this. And I, I was at the beginning of the pandemic in the middle of opening this bookstore. I'd sunk my life savings into opening this bookstore that by the time it was ready, it was impossible to open. It was looking like this enormous failure, mistake, you know, like albatross around my neck. And I, I wrote this note card to myself and I have a picture of it because I took, I wrote it to myself. I was thinking about it every day and I took the picture in front of the bookstore. Uh, and I just wrote to myself, I said, 2020 is a test. Will it make you a better person or a worse one? right? I have no idea whether the bookstore will work. I have no idea where things are going. I have no idea what life is going to look like. What I control inside that is to I emerge from it a better person, right? More community-minded, a better spouse, a better thinker, a better writer, more patient, more self-aware. Those are the things I control within it. And so when we say the obstacle is the way, we're not like, oh, it's great this terrible thing happened to me but you're saying what I took from this terrible thing, or maybe you're trying to strip the labels altogether, but you're saying what I took from this was positive I made from it. That's the paradoxical. Yeah, yeah, it. that's a great breakdown. I'm so glad you went into that because yeah, I've heard the example in the same way of when there were soldiers who said, we'll be home by Christmas. Yeah. 
they their hope was shattered yeah. because they weren't home by Christmas. And whereas the people who said, we'll figure out a way to get home. And if we get home, we'll see our family. And that person was more likely to be able to deal with the fact that it didn't happen by this time. And I think, I think that's become our obsession with controlling time yeah. is partly where that comes from, where it's like, we want this done by this time. Yeah. And then whether it's positive or difficult, when it doesn't happen, we're completely demoralized, right? Like it's almost like it's all over just because it didn't have happen by an arbitrary date. Well, you're setting yourself up for disappointment or frustration or resentment or despair by attaching to an outcome that's not yours. If you get lucky, sure, you'll feel wonderful. But if you work for years on a book and success or failure of it was, did it win awards? Did it sell lots of copies? Did your parents read it? You know, those are things that are not in your control. But if it was, I understand this yeah. better than when I started, I am more confident than I was when I started, you know, like I said something, I got on the page what I thought only in my head at the beginning, right? Like when, when, when you move the outcome or the goal to something that's up to you, yeah. you'll always win. And I think that's what wise people do. They're, it's not that they're not ambitious. They are ambitious, but their ambition is things that are up to them. And, and so when Marcus is saying better wrestler as opposed to better philosopher, better friend, whatever, he's shifting from like this external societal driven thing to this internal thing that he controls, that he gets to judge the success or failure on. And it's not so quantifiable either. It's something deeper, more human, more connected. And so as you shift that, not only do I actually think you do better work, but you are increasing your chances of feeling good about yourself at the end of that. Yeah. And I think the challenge, Ryan, though, is that today we want both, right? We want the, we want the feeling of I did something that was true to me yeah. and it resonated with a lot of people or, or whatever that means, right? Like, and I feel like that's where, where everyone kind of gets stuck because it's like, you know, when, especially when people watch people do what they love and it gets received well, it's like, oh, well, I want to do that too. Where do you think people go wrong in that journey? Because like, what are the mistakes we make on that path? Because I feel like that's pretty much where, where people are headed. Well, yeah. I mean, I think we're sometimes not honest with you. You're like, I'm just, I want this album to be true to who I want to be, my artistic expression, blah, blah, blah. That's why you made all these sort of individualistic decisions. Deep down, you have this sort of secret lie, which is that you're actually judging yourself on where it lands on the billboard yeah, charts, right? Yeah. So that's the worst of both, right? Because you're not going, well, what do I need to do to be commercially successful? And I'm consistently judging myself on whether it was commercially successful or not. You're, you've set yourself up for maximum disappointment. But if you can say, look, here, my goal is to do my absolute best. My goal here is to get to the truth of what I'm saying, to express my in, what, what's true inside here. And that's what I'm going to focus on, and I'm not going to waste any time on these other things. I actually do think, I'm sure you found this, is that that does make better work. It yeah, makes it truer work. It makes more authentic work, more relatable work. It, it actually does make a better product, but only if you are fully and honestly and deeply committed to doing it. It can't be like... I'm making the charitable donation. I'm doing it anonymously. 
but I still hope everyone sees how wonderful yeah, I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? It, it's you can't have your cake and eat it too. Yes, exactly. And and I think it goes back to what you were saying a few moments ago, where it's like you have to accept the reality, which includes your own intention. Like I know that I like creating things that are, are true to me, but are commercially successful. That is important to me as a value of mine, and I'm okay with that. Yeah. Uh, because I don't want to lie about those things to myself at all. Because I enjoy the idea of creating thoughts and ideas that can affect lots of people. Like that, that is something that gives me a sense of uh, feeling that I've understood an idea and been able to communicate it well enough. I, I guess what I'm saying is that it comes back to what you were saying at the beginning that I don't set out to write a commercially successful book or launch something commercially. Like that isn't what you set out to do. Set out to understand, articulate, communicate with myself and write an incredible book. And then that leads to that. But at some part of that process, you have to think about the sharing of it. Yeah, of course. And I've learned a lot from you in this regard. Like you're not helping yourself or your ideas by rejecting what makes them accessible or shareable or turning your nose up at this tool or that tool. Like, look, like when I want to learn about an idea, I want to read long form books about Same. it. That's the medium that I'm comfortable in. I don't think... TikTok. But millions of people do think TikTok or Instagram. And to turn your nose up or close your heart off to those people because they're not like you is not just snobbish, but if you actually care about the ideas, it's selfish. And, and so I don't think they're mutually exclusive. But I also think if you're on those platforms and you're letting the algorithm decide what you do and don't do, Correct. you are sacrificing the whole reason you became a creator in the first place. Correct. Absolutely. And I think that's the, that's the balance, right? It's like there's, there's people who just completely sell out for the algorithm. And then there's the selfish creator or the snobbish creator on the other end who thinks they're too cool. Yeah. Like it's kind of like this badge of honor where it's like, oh yeah, I don't need to do that. Like I don't care about it. And, and I'm like that that defeats the whole point because I'm hoping this book was a compassionate expression of service, hopefully. And maybe it wasn't. Maybe it just was a selfish, arrogant move of professing your ideas and that's like the best thing about it. And so you have sellouts on one end and you have selfish on the other end. And to me, like service is kind of in the middle where it's like service means I understand people's needs and interests and concerns and where they're at, but I also have to serve them what's most beneficial. What's well, like you meet people where they are. Yeah. And, and like... It, there's almost agreed to it. It's like, well, I wrote in a book. If you want to hear it, you can buy it, right? Well, what if they're not ready for that? What if they're too busy for that? What if they already did buy it, yeah. but they just need a reminder of it, right? And so there's different, uh, just in the way that like, look, I also read in English. That's the only language that I speak, but I don't turn up my nose at all these different translations. I go, oh yeah, there's a process. These ideas get translated in those languages and they reach people who otherwise wouldn't have consumed it. Yeah, yeah. And understanding that different people have different native languages. Some people like audiobooks, some people like podcasts, some people like uh, this social network or that social ne network. And that by thinking that you know, one is superior to the other. In fact, you should be translating your work in all these different areas, long form, short form, audio, video, text, what you should be everywhere that's that's possible and understanding that the win is that the ideas are reaching people and helping them in their life. If some of those things translate to sales or followers, great. But like I I always think about like again, what is success? At the end of the day, like 
if your thing sold zero copies, but it changed the world, you'd be like, that was that that was a win. Totally. So why don't you just do the stuff that changes the world and trust, again, trust the process that you'll probably be able to make a living. Absolutely. absolutely. And, and most things that do change the world or have an impact started non-commercially, right? Like in that sense of, especially creation or ideas, I mean, uh, maybe not businesses, but but ideas, like when, when I started creating content, even the first few interviews I did with you, like I did, I mean, that Nasdaq, that whole Nasdaq, I never got paid for that whole series. Yeah. I was interviewing authors every week because I was fascinated by the idea that I get to sit down with people that I find interesting. You're also putting in your hours. You're yeah. getting good at yeah, this you get, thing. Yeah, 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 exactly. And you're getting good at it. You're enjoying it. You get to meet awesome people. Uh, and even even when we did the show at Huff Post, it was like it was I was leading the show of what kind of show we wanted it to be. It wasn't like yeah. it was already set up. And so, yeah, I look back and I think like all stuff that had an impact and grew was always from that deep intention, pure intention of I want to create something that will hopefully help people have these conversations. And that was what it was for me. I felt when I started creating content, there weren't there were so many people who had deep, thoughtful conversations offline but there was no spaces online really to have those, or there wasn't a piece of content you'd send to your friend and be like, did you see this? Like, have we talked about this? And I wanted to create an excuse for people to have more meaningful, thoughtful conversations based on ideas. I mean, look, I think at the end of the day, it's like you create a lot of value, and if you can capture a small percentage of it, you're good, right? Like I think about Craigslist, like the vast majority of stuff on Craigslist has been free since the very beginning. Yet Craigslist still makes a billion dollars a year in revenue. Like when you create a lot of value, I create so much content and like the only part that is not free are the books, yeah. right? And the books fund that work and then that work also funds the books. It's you, You're creating kind of a flywheel of stuff. I was thinking about one of my books that, that hasn't sold as well as the other books. Which one is it? Uh, Lives of the Stoics is oh, yeah. different than my other books, but I personally use and then also have <laughs> reused stuff that I learned while writing that book almost every single day. So like the monetization, you know, to use that word, the value creation there was a personal one. And the book is done extremely well by like any yeah, you know, sort yeah, of yeah. standard, but like the primary beneficiary was me. Yes. And again, if you, whatever you're doing, you can say, look, the primary beneficiary of this is me having gone through it, changing, developing, learning. And then the byproduct is that I paid my rent or that like, you know, this happened that then you've, you've won and all the stuff that's out of your control is the extra. Yes. That's where you want to be. Yeah. Yeah. I can agree more. And, and that requires just so much. I think that requires refining of the intention. It requires having a sense of belief and confidence. I think, I think for me is the other, and, and for you too, I, from, from your journey that we've talked about before, like I spent 10 years doing this without any followers or without any commerciality to it anyway, because it was all offline. Yeah. And it was speaking to rooms of five to 10 people if they showed up. And so it was like, for so long, I was doing it without any care of how far it went because it was just so powerful. It was so beautiful to live in that world of, even if I had one meaningful conversation with someone after an event, that would make my day. Like I'd talk about it for weeks. Let me ask you this, I've been thinking about it lately. Yeah. The work that you're doing now, or that I'm doing now, is the result of work you did a long time ago. It's a yeah. lagging indicator of sacrifice and commitment and study and practice from however long ago. Sometimes what keeps me up at night is I go, 
but 10 years from now, 15 years from now, am I putting in the work doing this stuff now that will pay off then? And how do you know? How do you know if, if success is this lagging indicator or growth is this lagging indicator of commitment now? How can you be sure that you are paying your dues? Yes, I'm so glad you said that because I literally just, I've been talking to my team about a few things that we're doing. I've literally asked us to find three new coaches. Like I've, I've literally gone, I've always learned through one-to-one coaching or mentorship. Like that's my favorite, apart from books, that is my favorite way of learning. Uh, and especially when it comes to self-transformation. So I love ideas through books, but when it comes to me actually changing, I'm better when I'm working with one person and getting mentorship or coaching. So you're thinking about who are, who are your teachers to get you to the next level, a level you might not even know exists yet. Correct. And so I'm, I'm trying to identify those people right now. So when I was a teen, I was reading Malcolm X, Martin Luther King, Steve Jobs, right? Like, well, Steve Jobs a bit later actually, but Martin Luther King, Malcolm X, like that's who I was reading at 16 years old. Sure. They were hugely uh, formative in my ideology in so many ways. And then in my 20s, obviously I lived with the monks. So that was hugely that. And then went to public speaking school when I was 11 years old. So that has, that has lasted far too long and needs to be refined again. Uh, and, and so, yeah, I completely agree with you. I look at all the skills I have today and I go, where do they need to be refined? Yeah. And then I look at, well, what are the things I'm missing out on? Because I'm not exposing myself. Now, I do think that I do find having the podcast very fortunate because I do get to sit down with a lot of people that I seek mentorship from in an informal sense. And then I could be like, oh, well, I'm really gonna do a deep dive on that person's book or yeah. like Gabor Mate was just on. Yeah. He's amazing, like, you know, and, and people have known about him for a long, long time. This was the first time I interviewed him, but I'm like now doing a backwards reading of all of his books. Sure. And so I love that, you know? Yeah, yeah, it's like, what rabbit holes are you falling down? What sort of new, it's like a great athlete. It's like, well, what am I adding to my game this off season? Totally. And like, how do you not get complacent and, coast because you could be coasting for a long time and yes, not realize your lost skills, that yeah. your skills or your speed is slowly decreasing before it, and then it's it's too late yeah that's such a good point and, and i think the thing that hit me there what you just said is just it's also what skills do i need that i'm not trying to see the results now yes like what is something i'm happy to let kind of simmer and build and just uh, organically grow rather than like I'm going to learn this skill because next week we're going to launch this thing. Like, that's not what I'm talking about. Well, all the things you were talking about that made you who you were, those were never means to an end because the end was inconceivable, right? right. Like none of it didn't even exist. Absolutely. But somehow it was the perfect, like, training montage for who you became. And how do you make you sure the montage is continuing as opposed to this once in a formative thing? And then, you know, every once in a while I'll do a talk and, like, it's the person before me, you're like, oh, you've been doing this a long time the exact same way and you you stopped, you stopped yeah. and you don't, yeah. you don't want that. Yeah, exactly. And I, and I think partly that's also me allowing myself, at least for me, and I'm only talking about myself, but I, I think this is helpful for people. I think you have to allow yourself to become different things and giving yourself permission to follow that bliss, as Joseph Campbell would say, because... Right, for example, when I, when I wrote Think Like a Monk, that was uh, the kind of end and beginning of a new journey in my life. Like I was kind of encapsulating what I've learned of the last 15 years. And then it was like, well, now I'm in a new space. Like I'm a married man now, I'm, I'm, I'm a business person, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm so many more things. And so it was almost like me saying, okay, well, I'm gonna put this wrapper on this right now. And now my next book's all about love. 
And there's loads of people going, Jay, like, why are you writing about love? Like, why? And I was like, because I'm fascinated by love. Like, and I'm okay with answering that question yeah. of why love. I don't want to continue to write books. I mean, by the way, the love book is full of wisdom I learned during my time as a monk. Of course it is. But the point is that I don't want to be defined by that. And I don't want to limit myself to any human experience because then I'm basically saying I have to be this. And that's what performers do. Yeah. I have to play this character for the rest of my life. And then you get typecast in your own life and you don't let yourself. And I'm like, maybe my next book will definitely not be about love. I know that for a fact, my next book's not about love, but I'm okay with that. Like, I like the idea of I'm letting myself go in the direction of whatever I want to become, because why, why would I limit it now? Well, we talked about like, you know, cranking the shower handle, that that's a muscle, right? My first book was about marketing. Yeah. I could have sold my next book about marketing, my next book about marketing. I could be still doing that. I could still be speaking about that first book. And when I went to my publisher and I was like, you know, I want to write about this obscure school of ancient philosophy. They were like, what? <laughs> you know, they were like, how's half sound? You know, they give me half what I got for my first book. But that's that muscle. I was yeah. like, I don't care. This is what I want to do. Yeah. And so when you cultivate the ability to, to do that hard thing, the challenging thing, the different thing, the investing in like being bad at something to get good at something. You think about Tiger Woods, he's changed his swing three or four times from the ground up. That's the real muscle that prevents mm -hmm. you from sort of ossifying or declining. It's the ability to go like, just because I'm here doesn't mean I'm going to stay here. I want to try and do something radically new or different that I, I hope will work commercially, but I know personally I will emerge better, right? Like, yeah. like let's say that the, the book doesn't work. I'm sure it will. Let's say it doesn't work, yeah. but you're like, hey, my, my marriage is better <laughs> as having done it. It's a win from top to bottom, right? And then, you know, you take that with you as you go. For me writing it, I wrote a completely different book than the one I thought I was going to write. And I wrote it three times. And the first time it was too raw and probably too... Like it was, it was probably too tough a read. And the second time it was too shallow. Like it was totally like not what I would want to do. And then the third time we got the balance right. Yeah. It's funny what you said about earlier, like the discipline of trying to get out of doing things wrong, but the discipline of ambition. Once you've had one success in anything, most people grip onto it because now you've had a taste of it. Yeah. And now you're scared that if you don't be that person, you will lose it. And I just wouldn't want to live that way because then you are just acting well, and it, not being. It's like what you think that having the success, proving yourself should make you more courageous, less risk averse, because now you've done it. But in fact, the opposite is true, yeah. right? This is where courage and discipline are related. Uh, it, it's the opposite. Now you have something to lose. Now you don't want to change, go in a different direction because the expectation is set with the first one. So you imagine how scary it is, Tiger Woods, you're like, you're the best swing in golf, and you're like, but I think it could be better, but I'm gonna have to go have a bad swing for months to get to the other side of that. And so the ability to say, I decide whether I'm successful or not, not the external results, and that's why I'm willing to go down this detour, try things differently, do this, that is that sort of key skill and courage and discipline have to be related. They complement each other. And yeah, like it was comfort. My first book came out, it debuted on the bestseller list. It was controversial. But if who I would be today, if I continued down that road would be a caricature of that first person. Cause I would have been, it would have been a copy of a copy of a copy of a copy. 
Instead, I went towards something that was interesting to me, which opened up another thing that was interesting. To, and and that, like, I wouldn't be who I am had I done the safe thing. And so all they say all growth is a leap in the dark, mm. right? You have to continually take that leap. And one of the things I, I hope you learn when you do that is, first off, it's not as scary as you thought. But then sometimes, like, it doesn't work. And you go, oh, but I feel great about it. And then it decouples external recognition from the internal process. And then you go, yeah, I just do what I want. I do where it takes me. And a lot of times it works out. Sometimes it doesn't, but it's called being a creator for a reason. You're making something. You're the leader. You're not a follower. Well said. Ryan, this has been so much fun uh, the best diving way. in with you. We were talking for ages. I had no idea where the time went, uh, but it's been such a joy just always like just getting into it with you. And I hope that everyone who's been listening, I hope you go and grab a copy of Discipline is Destiny, The Power of Self-Control uh, by Ryan Holiday. And of course, any of the other books that we've recommended before on the show. If you love this episode, you can go back and listen to a ton of other episodes with Ryan. Uh, and again, I hope today's episode, I tried not to do for everyone who's listening. And you know, I've been trying this more recently. I tried not to do a systematic conversation of breaking down how to build discipline and which, you know, I, I've been avoiding that kind of hack kind of conversation recently, which I think you've been really resonating with because I think sometimes the penny that needs to drop isn't the how-to, it's kind of like the the churning of the idea in your own self of of coming closer to what it truly means for you and making sense of it. So that's been my attempt at least. Uh, and I hope that's coming through. I hope you enjoyed this. Please do give me feedback on, on Twitter, Instagram. Tag Ryan and I both with your greatest insights, the nuggets of wisdom. Uh, and we'll see you on another episode of On Purpose. Thank you, everyone. If you love this episode, you'll enjoy my interview with Dr. Daniel Amen on how to change your life by changing your brain. Everything in moderation, which is the gateway thought to hell. It's the gateway thought to cheating. As soon as you hear someone say everything in moderation, they're going to do something bad for their brain. Ah, oh, summer. The best time of the year usually doesn't come with a great deal. Soaring temperatures come with soaring prices. But what if there's another way? With IKEA, your summer plans can last longer than two weeks of vacation and be more affordable. Here, everyone can have lounge chair access. No reservations needed. From affordable outdoor furniture to stylish accessories, we have all the essentials you need to soak up summer in style, no matter the size of your space. Start planning a better summer with IKEA. It's your outdoor dreams inside your budget. Today, Healthier is happening at CVS Health in more ways than you've ever seen. It's wellness destinations for seniors, including select locations with Oak Street Health and CVS Pharmacy. It's doctors, nurses, pharmacists, and everyone in between offering quality care and support virtually in person and on the phone. It's in-home evaluations through Signify Health and meeting mental health needs through Atna. And those are just a few of the ways Healthier is happening. To see more, visit cvshealth.com forward slash healthier happens together. CVS Pharmacy, Oak Street Health, CVS Specialty, Signify Health and Atna are part of CVS Health. Eligibility and services vary by location and individual. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. It's a simple truth, no matter who you are, 
mental health challenges can affect you and how you manage them can make all the difference. That's why everyone should have access to mental health support that meets them where they are and helps them get through. BetterHelp provides online therapy on your schedule. It's flexible, simple to use, and more affordable than in-person therapy. Connect with a licensed therapist selected just for you. Learn more at betterhelp.com. That's betterhelp.com.